0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. From the draining mucus to the throbbing around your nose and eyes, sinusitis can make you miserable, and it can drag on for weeks.
2: What's a person to do? And using the saline irrigation, you can rinse out the sinuses and thereby rinsing it out, you reduce the symptoms as well. And by allowing that to be cleared out, you can have some symptomatic relief as well.
3: Also on the program, Molecular Breast Imaging, or MBI, goes beyond the mammogram and finding cancer in
1: dense breast tissue. And a woman, not just any woman, <laughs> whose breast cancer might not have been found without MBI, tells her story.
3: All that, along with this week's health and medical
1: news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Drainage of a thick yellow or greenish discharge from your nose or down the back of your throat. Nasal congestion, cough, pain and tenderness around your eyes, cheeks, nose or forehead. Any of that sound familiar? I hope Uh, not. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those are the common symptoms of a condition called sinusitis. Now, most of us have had at least an occasional bout of sinusitis. It's a condition in which the cavities around your nasal passages, that is your sinuses, become inflamed and swollen there are two types of
3: sinusitis ac- acute and chronic acute sinusitis usually lasts a week or two but chronic sinusitis can drag on for 8 weeks or more there are several causes of sinusitis including some you might not have thought of here to explain the causes of sinusitis and what some suggestions for what you can do if you get it is mayo clinic allergy specialist dr rohit divakar welcome back to the program dr divakar it's great to have you here
1: thank you sinusitis a huge problem isn't it? It is. It is. Is, it, is it more common in, the, in northern climates? More people in Minnesota get sinusitis <laughs> than in
2: Florida? I think it's quite prevalent all over the country. The uh, infectious causes of acute sinusitis are seasonal, and they do happen to show up at different points in time uh, in different parts of the country. Uh, but uh, the fact that we are more together indoors does allow for easier transmission of some of the viral causes of sinusitis.
3: Well, let's explain the acute and the chronic. So what is the difference?
2: So um, you mentioned that if the symptoms last for eight weeks or more, then it would be termed as chronic sinusitis. There are quite a few definitions of what chronic sinusitis is, and the one that's quite commonly used in research or in clinical uh, usage is if you have symptoms of mid-facial pain, discharge drainage or lack of sense of smell and these sinus symptoms have to be ongoing for more than 12 weeks with the presence of an objective evidence on the ct scan showing inflammation or a rhinoscopy that shows pus coming out from the sinuses rhinoscopy yes that's a tool that we use to it's a small camera like a bendy straw that goes up the nose And it's able to take pictures or images of the sinuses and nasal passages from within. And what you're looking for is inflammation of the lining or that the cavity might be full of whatever. Correct. So we are looking for pus that might be coming out from the openings of the sinuses or polyps too.
3: And that's what what shows
2: that it's chronic sinusitis. That, And the chronicity is dependent upon the time frame, 12 weeks or more. Yeah. Are, now, are most of these uh,
1: cases of sinusitis due to a bacteria or are they due to a, a
2: virus or something else? So the most prevalent cause of sinusitis is usually viral. Uh, bacterial sinusitis can be super added as a consequence of previous infection or in some people who are immunocompromised, they can get bacterial sinusitis as well. So if it's viral, you can't treat it, right? Correct. You sort of let it follow its natural course, and uh, usually things heal on their own. And that's why the distinction of whether it's lasting for several weeks versus something that gets better in a week or two. And just because it's green or yellow doesn't necessarily mean it's bacterial. Correct. And many of acute inflammatory reactions, you can have greenish yellow phlegm or snot that can be present for a few weeks, but then it resolves on its own. What about clear So clear uh, drainage can be from a variety of causes. Allergies can be a cause of clear drainage. Sometimes towards the tail end of an infection, you can get clearing of the Mm. drainage. Or many of the viral sinusitis or viral rhinitis, the first few days, it's usually clear. It's the sniffles.
1: So is there a way that you can tell if you see someone who has discharge and pain in their sinuses whether or not it is viral or bacterial so you know whether or
2: not they
1: can be treated with an antibiotic?
2: So the guidelines tend to recommend not treating with antibiotic at the first sign of uh, symptoms because, again, most of them being viral, they will not respond to antibiotic therapy. If the symptoms last longer than 10 to 14 days, or if there is a recurrence of fever, or if there is severe pain, there is warmth, or the discharge changes, then, or if we have um, a swab or if we have a test that confirms that there is bacterial infection, that those might be the indications to use antibiotics appropriately. Is the swab pretty accurate? And, and Again, it's not because uh, the nasal passages are full of yeah. bacteria as it is. So just taking a swab from the mucus that comes out might yield some false results too.
1: So in most cases, it's viral. And so there's no antibiotic that will you know, cure it or help it get better. So what can people, there are some things people can do at
2: home, right? To for both c- acute and chronic sinusitis? So for acute sinusitis, the treatment is essentially symptomatic, meaning if you have mild fevers, take some... Uh, fever reducing medications, salt water gargles, make sure if you have any sore throat, you can have uh, warm or hot tea, honey, lemon, things that help soothe your throat. Um, if you are diagnosed with a chronic sinusitis, however, then the question is what is the chronic sinusitis from, and we need to investigate that a little further, and then the treatment is based upon what we find based on those tests.
1: Now, what about the neti pot where you can actually wash out your sinuses? You you like
2: that? So we do recommend using uh, saline irrigations, especially in the chronic sinusitis area, and that's because in many situations it's difficult for the thick mucus to uh, rinse out, And using the saline irrigation, you can rinse out the sinuses. You can actually rinse out some of the uh, inflammatory mediators that are being produced locally, causing more inflammation, and thereby rinsing it out, you reduce the symptoms as well. But when you're rinsing out your sinuses, you're
1: really only rinsing out the sinuses that are by your cheeks, by your nose, right? I mean, you're not... What if it's up in the frontal sinuses, up in your forehead?
2: Right. So the openings of these sinuses are very small. So the amount of saline that actually enters in the sinus is minimal. Mm. These saline irrigations are most useful to get rid of the thick mucus that's kind of stuck at the back of the throat. And by allowing that to be cleared out, you can have some symptomatic relief as well. The benefit of saline irrigations is really high in patients who've had prior sinus surgeries where the openings are now large, and uh, the intent at that point in time is not just to rinse the sinuses out, but actually we can put medications in the sinuses so that the medications reach the lining of the sinus where it needs to go. Is
3: sinusitis the same thing as a sinus
2: infection? Um, Are we swapping terms? So sinusitis means inflammation of sinuses. Okay. It can be infectious. Okay. Or it can be from a non-infectious cause as well. All right. If you are prone to
1: sinus infections, what can you do to, to try not to get another one?
2: So I've had this question uh, come up so many times. Um, It's what everybody wants to know at cocktail parties, (laughs) (laughs) soccer games. uh, Common sense practices, uh, hand washing techniques, making sure you are, especially in cold and flu season or in seasons where you have prevalence of viral infections, that you maintain uh, hand hygiene and things like that. All right, Dr.
1: Rohit Divakar, obviously a expert on sinusitis. He's known as an allergy specialist, but he also knows a lot about asthma. And we want to ask him about that coming up in our next segment.
3: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest today is Dr. Rohit Divakar. He's an allergy specialist. He's told us all about the diagnosis and the treatment of sinusitis, in addition to the prevention of that problem that affects so many. But now we want to talk to him about another one of his areas of expertise, and that is asthma. And there's a difficult
2: problem for a lot of people also. Is asthma different between
3: adults than children?
2: That's a very good question. Mm -hmm. Uh, In uh, kids, unfortunately, especially uh, if they are small, they cannot do the tests that would be required to make a diagnosis of asthma. So in many instances in kids, sometimes we presume a diagnosis of asthma based upon how they present and the response to medications. But in adults, we can actually do some pulmonary tests or spirometries to assess how severe the asthma is or if there is any other pulmonary problem associated with the asthma. And tell us what the term means, asthma. So asthma is a disease that is defined by irreversible airflow obstruction. That means there is a problem with the flow of air in and out of lungs, but this problem is reversible and temporary. So this is characterized by episodes where the airway is narrow, causing the obstruction of airflow. And then the airways relax after a while, causing the reversibility. The reason why this happens is because of, now we believe, inflammation in the airways that causes the airways to narrow down uh, and cause asthma. That inflammation is the key piece? It is the the key piece. Uh, For a long time, we used to think it was the reactivity, meaning the uh, ability of the airways to narrow. It was the function of the smooth muscles. Now, we know that it's mostly the inflammation, the immune system that drives a lot of asthma, causing these smooth muscles in the airway to contract.
1: And this could be a really serious problem. I mean, you hear of people who have a, an acute asthma attack and they die.
2: That How is does very true. that happen? That is very true. So the, there are many uh, thoughts behind why somebody would die in an asthma attack. One, if the constriction, that means the narrowing of the airways, is very sudden and near complete there is no way the person is going to be able to have a a good uh, breath and Mm -hmm. the problem is getting air out of the lungs another big problem is if people cannot perceive their discomfort then they end up with more trouble than not and these people are called as poor perceivers they've had asthma for so long that for them what is considered normal might not be the real normal and even a slight reduction in their lung status can throw them overboard and cause them to have a, a near fatal that asthma. That
3: almost seems backwards. You'd think that if you've had it for your whole life, you'd be able to you'd be able to key in on oh it's starting.
2: Right, and that that affects a subset of people who okay. have had asthma because they live with it and they that's their normal.
1: There are a lot of reasons that someone can complain of, of shortness of breath or difficulty breathing. How do you determine that it is in fact asthma?
2: Asthma is characterized by wheezing, chest tightness, cough, uh, difficulty breathing, and uh, it has these clinical features that can suggest if somebody has asthma. These are episodic, meaning they kind of come and go, and they are also associated by certain triggers that cause symptoms to worsen, and these triggers can be allergic, they can be cold air, they can be exercise, they can be irritants, and then you sort of have a cause and effect type relationship which helps us clue in into whether or not clinically you suspect asthma.
1: You said, uh, I'm sorry, allergy. You said they could be allergic, a trigger could be allergic. Right.
2: Like what? So, for example, if somebody has a high degree of sensitivity to ragweed, and they have uh, an asthmatic tendency, so if they go out and they get exposed to a lot of ragweed, they are going to come down not only with the upper respiratory symptoms, but they're also going to have lower airway symptoms, causing the constriction, the wheezing, and cough.
3: It seems like there's more people with asthma now than there was when I was a kid. You know, so let's say 20 to 25 years. Is is it this we're paying more attention to it, or are there really more cases of asthma now than there were a decade ago or two decades ago?
2: overall, there is an increase in the number of atopic conditions. Now, atopic conditions is a term that encompasses things like asthma, food allergies, hay fever, allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis, which is the eczema that you would see normally in childhood. And the reason why one might hypothesize that there is an increase in these conditions is um, lack of exposure to infections that were quite prevalent in the past or change in our lifestyle.
1: Um, I know that uh, some people with asthma get by pretty well with an inhaler. Some people with asthma are on medications that they take long term. What, What determines your recommended treatment?
2: The, it depends on the severity of their symptoms, the frequency of their symptoms, and how much burden does the disease have on their lifestyle. There is a stepwise plan to introduce medications based on how the patients are doing. And the simplest would be using something like albuterol on an as-needed basis. All right, that's an inhaler. That's the inhaler.
3: Some of the gals that I run with throw a term around called sports asthma or exercise-induced asthma. Um, Is that something different altogether? Is that just one of those things that you listed off like the weather or allergies or?
2: So uh, exercise-induced bronchospasm, meaning bronchus is airway, spasm is contraction is a phenomenon by itself and can happen in folks who have no other symptoms of asthma. Just when they're exercising. Just when they're exercising. When this happens in somebody who has a diagnosis of asthma, it's called as exercise-induced asthma, and that is a trigger for their asthma.
1: Um, Is there a genetic link here? Does this tend to be familial, asthma?
2: Asthma has a a very strong genetic predisposition. There have been several studies, the uh, GWAS studies that have shown multiple genes associated with the immune system that have been associated with the tendency for development of asthma. I forgot to
1: ask you about uh, medical treatment of of asthma. Um, What are the long-term side effects of someone that has taken
2: medication for their asthma for a long time? Are there some? So if uh, it depends on what medication they're on. Now, there are pills like uh, Montelukast, There are antihistamines for very mild allergic asthma. There is inhaled corticosteroids, which can be in combination or by itself. And overall studies do say, yes, there is some health risk to using these medications on a chronic basis. But uh, I believe that we should have a discussion with the patient that not doing the appropriate therapy has the potential of putting them at a higher risk of suffering from a bad attack, a near-fatal attack of asthma in some cases if they don't do their medications.
3: And can, like uh, kids, for instance, can you outgrow asthma?
2: You can. Mm -hmm. Uh, In many instances, we have patients who say they were diagnosed with asthma when they were small, but then they grew out of it, and it happens. Wow, that's a good thing, huh?
3: You mentioned, um, you know, the time of year. So if it's really cold, that can have, or the sports induced, or the allergies can trigger your asthma. That makes me think that there must be seasons. People, maybe they don't have asthma at one time of year, but they do at the others. Is that correct?
2: Right. And uh, you can also get sensitization to indoor allergens. And if Mm -hmm. uh, people are having symptoms all the year round, then one would tend to think, Are they allergic to the cat that they have or are they allergic to dust mite? Because these things would be present at all times throughout the year in the home.
3: So that's how allergies and asthma are linked in that way. Right,
2: right. And allergies are one subset of asthma. All right, yeah. So uh, briefly explain
1: the difference between those two conditions, asthma versus allergies.
2: Asthma is a clinical diagnosis of chest tightness, wheezing, cough. So it pertains to the lungs and has to be objectively assessed based on lung function. Allergies is more of a loose term that tends to encompass some of the upper respiratory symptoms, eye symptoms, nasal symptoms that pertain to inhaled allergens. All right, and asthma of the lungs and, and
1: allergies generally, the upper respiratory right. system common in the, the, common lungs, usage. And the
2: eyes, etc. Yeah.
1: All right, allergy specialist Dr. Rohit Divakar, thanks so much for being with us. All well, right, thank you. Still
3: to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, molecular breast imaging or MBI is a tool used to diagnose breast cancer in women with dense breast tissue. We'll find out how it works and hear from a woman whose cancer might have been missed without MBI. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute truck drivers who don't stick to their sleep apnea treatments have a five-time greater risk of serious preventable crashes. That's according to a new study from the University of Minnesota Morris published in the journal Sleep. Now, obstructive sleep apnea, or OSA, is a potentially serious sleep disorder in which breathing repeatedly stops and starts during sleep. The condition is associated with many health issues, including daytime sleepiness. Study authors estimate that up to 20 percent of large truck crashes are due to drowsiness behind the wheel. They say commercial truck drivers should be screened regularly for sleep apnea, and if they have it, they should be required to treat it to continue driving. Dr. Clayton Cole, chair of Preventive Occupational and Aerospace Medicine at Mayo Clinic, published an earlier study that found sleep apnea is a serious issue for commercial drivers. Dr. Cole believes all drivers, not just truckers, should take steps to stay safe and alert on the roads. And if they have OSA or other health issues that impact safety, they should see their health care provider to address them. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Molecular Breast Imaging, or MBI, is a test that uses a radioactive tracer and a special camera to find breast cancer. Now, rather than a mammogram, which simply takes pictures of breast tissue, molecular breast imaging is a type of what we call functional imaging. Now, that means that the pictures it creates show differences in the activity of the tissue. Tissue that contains cells that are rapidly growing and dividing, like cancer cells, appear brighter. They light up, and that's compared to less active, normal tissue. A great test.
3: MBI is particularly good at finding cancers in dense breast tissue, which sometimes blocks more conventional mammography. About half of all women have dense breast tissue. Here to talk about MBI and its uses is Mayo Clinic Preventative Medicine Specialist, Dr. Deborah Rhodes. Dr. Rhodes treats patients in the breast diagnostic clinic at Mayo. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rhodes. Great to have you back. Thank you, Tom and Tracy.
1: Hey, Deb, good to have you here. So tell us about this new, relatively new test called MBI. Why is it important?
4: You described molecular breast imaging beautifully by emphasizing that it's a functional technique. And this is really the critical advance in breast imaging that is missing from our traditional ways of trying to find breast cancer. If you think about mammography and even this new technique of three-dimensional mammography and also ultrasound, they all seek to find visible differences in the appearance of the tumor relative to the background. And as Tracy mentioned, that can be readily obscured when women have very dense breast tissue because dense tissue and tumors are both white on a mammogram and they can look exactly the same. And that accounts for why, when you actually use a functional imaging tool to image women with dense breasts, you see that mammography is missing about 7 out of 10 tumors in women who have dense breasts. Half of the women have dense breasts, so that's a lot of tumors that are being missed. It's a lot of tumors that are being missed, and one you you looked shocked when I mentioned that, Tom, but that's not uh, uncommon that people don't know that, and the reason is because historically the way we've always measured the sensitivity of mammography is to see how many tumors we can find on the mammogram and then wait a year before the next mammogram and see how many other tumors show up that weren't detected on the mammogram. And that's the traditional measure we use of how good mammography is. The problem is tumors can remain dormant in the breast, undetected for years, even in women who faithfully undergone their annual mammogram if they have very dense tissue. And we've seen this many times in our own research. We have a case of a woman who had been undergoing mammography every year, and when she had our technique performed, she indeed had an 11 by 13 centimeter cancer. And such a cancer does not come up over a year. Such a cancer probably takes more like five to 10 years to evolve. And so the implication there is that that tumor was not detectable on mammography because she had extremely dense breast tissue. So It's very important to emphasize that mammography has a strong and continued role in detecting breast cancer. It's the only tool we have that's been associated with a mortality reduction in the range of 20 to 30% for For women women who undergo regular screening. And that's nothing to sneeze at. That's an enormous, important impact for women when you consider that breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. That's nothing, uh, I mean, that's a success. But I think the point we've been trying to emphasize is that we could do so much more. We could probably be twice as successful in saving women from breast cancer if we complemented mammography with a tool that's particularly configured to detect breast cancer in the population of women who are currently not well-served by mammography alone. Well, why wouldn't women with dense breasts just skip the mammogram and go right to the MBI? That's a great question, and that's something that we're hoping to test in a study that will alternate mammography with MBI in women with dense breasts. We certainly don't want to abandon mammography altogether because mammography can indeed find very small tumors. But I think the corollary is that mammography can also miss very large tumors. And that's the group of women where we want to complement this technology with something that will overcome the limitations of mammography in that group. Is there any radiation involved with an MBI? So radiation is a factor in molecular breast imaging, and when we initially developed this technique, we felt that the radiation dose was too high to justify doing this on serial screens. So we spent four years Working on modifications, and I want to uh, cite Dr. Michael O'Connor and Dr. Kerry Rushka, who were instrumental in making these modifications to the system to permit radiation dose reduction to a level that is considered safe. Now, the level of radiation from a molecular breast image is higher than that from a mammogram, but still considered very safe and well below background levels of radiation to which we're routinely exposed. And so although that's been a criticism of molecular breast imaging, in my opinion, I would rather have a test with a little bit more radiation that has a much higher chance of detecting a breast cancer if I had dense breasts than have a test with a lower amount of radiation. So I think those factors are important to consider.
1: Did I hear you say that uh, mammography uh, misses 7 out of 10 cancers in women with dense breasts?
4: In my opinion, from the research that we've done at Mayo Clinic, and also research done by another breast researcher, Wendy Berg, looking at functional imaging, so either molecular breast imaging or another technique called MRI, if you add those techniques to traditional anatomic techniques like mammography and ultrasound, you will pick up an additional number of cancers that reveals that mammography was initially picking up about three to four out of every ten.
1: All right, so this test, I'm sure, is available at the Mayo Clinic, but is it widely available, and how much does it cost?
4: The uh, technique is becoming more widely available. It's available in about a hundred centers now. Um, One of the centers that's been a particular pioneer in Ohio uh, Dr. Rob Shermis there has been offering molecular breast imaging to patients with dense breast tissue after they come in and have a negative mammogram, and he's actually found data identical to our own Mayo Clinic data that molecular breast imaging finds 363% more cancers than mammography alone wow. in women with dense breasts. And compare that to tomosynthesis, this new 3D mammography that's now been widely adopted across the country, finds an additional 30 to 40 percent cancers. So 363 percent versus 30 to 40 percent. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference.
3: We need to probably take a quick step back and just explain what are dense
4: breasts. What does that mean? If half of the women have them, what does that mean exactly? Great question. Dense breast tissue is not a disease. It's a normal anatomic pattern in the breast that refers to a higher proportion of fibroglandular tissue in the breast relative to fat. Most young women have dense breast tissue, and breast density is the reason why the rate of missed cancers in women in their 40s is 15 times higher than the rate of missed cancers in older women. In general, breast density declines with age. That being said, there are certainly women in their 70s and 80s that continue to retain dense breast tissue and ought to be offered some additional type of screening, in my opinion.
1: All right, so you indicated that there are about 100 centers around the country that have this uh, test available. Obviously, a good test for, for women with dense breasts, in your opinion. Cost.
4: The cost is a very difficult thing to pin down in Mm -hmm. all of medicine, I would say. I wondered why you
1: didn't answer that. Um,
4: So I will will simply say that at Mayo Clinic, the charge for a molecular breast imaging test is actually less than the charge for a standard digital mammogram.
1: Thanks, Dr. Rhodes, for explaining the use of MBI, molecular breast imaging, to detect breast cancer in women with dense breasts. Dr. Deborah Rhodes is a specialist in preventive medicine and treats patients in the breast diagnostic clinic at Mayo Clinic.
4: Thank you so much. We're
3: going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear from a woman whose breast cancer might have gone undiagnosed were it not for a molecular breast imaging exam.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We just heard in the
3: previous segment about how important molecular breast imaging, or MBI, can be in finding breast cancer, especially in dense breast tissue. Our next guest has a very personal experience with MBI. Last December, as part of a routine checkup, Kula Shives requested an MBI because she has dense breasts. All the cool kids do. (laughs) The imaging indicated suspicious tissue, and after more imaging and a biopsy, it was confirmed that Kula Shives had breast cancer. Kula is here in the studio to share her story, and by the way, Dr. Shives, if that last name sounds familiar, it's because she's your wife.
1: (laughs) Indeed she is, and I'm a lucky guy.
3: You are a very lucky guy, yes, and welcome to the program, Kula, and you're lucky as well. Yes, I am lucky. Thank you, Tracy. Well, I am flanked by Shives today. This is a wonderful opportunity, and um, I'm
5: really happy that you want to tell your story because you're right in the middle of fighting breast cancer. Correct. Today, I just finished phase one of my treatment, chemotherapy number 12.
1: And that was just a little while ago. She came over here from chemotherapy. You know, Kula, my dear, I I know you were hoping you wouldn't see me until after work today, but I am really glad that you're here. Thanks for coming. (laughs) Thank
5: you. Thank you for inviting me. So
1: chemotherapy this morning, uh, number 12, but go back and, and tell us this story because I obviously know it, but our listeners don't about how you came to have an MBI.
5: Um, it's an interesting story. I was in the first study that Dr. Rhodes did in approximately 2007. I've known I'd, I have known that I had dense breast since 2007. Um, after that initial study was over, I was off the protocol. Um, and in about 2011, maybe 2000, uh, 2011, a radiologist here at Mayo said to me, "Cool, I think you should probably go back into the MBI study. There's a new study on." So, as you would have it. The process took a while to go through, and by the time I uh, had contact with someone from the study, they told me that the study was over, but that MBI would be available to the public in the near future. So Mm -hmm. I've known for a long time that MBI was something that I needed. I've had um, regular mammograms for years. In 2012, I needed a biopsy of a spot. The biopsy was negative. So this year, my nurse practitioner in gynecology, I went for a routine exam on December 1st, and we've had this MBI discussion for years. Mm-hmm. And she said, I think you're right. I think this is the year. I hadn't really been feeling very well, and I'd had some pain in my left breast and in my chest, but you know, nothing really added up. What kind of pain? What did it feel like? Oh, hard to describe. Um, sometimes knife stabbing pain and tightness in my chest. Okay. I was tired a lot. Um married to a doctor, uh, he said.
2: Well,
3: you'll be well, mine. I was yeah. going to say,
5: <laughs> and Don't that's no, you kind of undersell that. You're married to Dr. Shives, which is, that's a whole other level. <laughs> so nothing really added up. I mean, I was exercising. I was living my life. Pretty normal type A personality. Um, but what I didn't tell Tom until the end was that I, w- I had been very tired lately. I um, am a stay-at-home mom, and I was taking naps in the afternoon when no one knew. So I had a feeling there was something wrong. I had no idea it was breast cancer, but that led to the MBI.
3: All right. And so most women, when they go in, they would get a mammogram, but you got the MBI because you knew you had dense breasts and that it's been part of the discussion ongoing. But since then, so many, you have discovered there are so many women that don't even know what an MBI is.
5: Correct. And the other reason I had the MBI first and not a normal mammogram is that the guidelines had recently just changed for women with uh, very dense breasts. And I have what's called a four out of four. So my breasts are as dense as they could be. Uh, the guidelines had just changed. If you had a routine mammogram 12 months or so earlier, you would then qualify for just an MBI, and then they would do further studies if anything showed on the MBI. That's why we went straight for MBI, and I had the MBI, and um, it confirmed that there was a mass in my breast. And It so was really
1: we, obvious on there, wasn't it?
5: Really obvious, yeah. yeah. And what, so
1: then how did they confirm that it, in fact, was a cancerous tumor?
5: Uh so the routine was I had the MBI on a Tuesday. On Wednesday, they called me and said, you know, your, your um, MBI is suspect, and we want you to come in for further views. What further views meant was I went through, I can't even begin to tell you how many regular mammograms I had, and then I went through tomosynthesis also, and they found the lump that they needed to then... They took me directly to ultrasound, to ultrasound the area, confirmed that there was a lump there, and also there was something suspect in my um, axillary lymph node. So that afternoon, I returned for a biopsy of the lump and of the uh, lymph node. Three hours later, we knew that my lymph node was positive, but we didn't know for sure that the breast was positive. That was a Friday. On Monday, we received the results that my breast lump was also positive. And on Tuesday, we received the results with a full confirmed diagnosis of breast cancer. And what's what was it like to tell your family? Oh, terrible! (laughs) (laughs) Um, First of all, Tom knew on Friday uh, because we knew that if the lymph node was positive, I mean the lump was going to be positive. So we knew on Friday. Our kids, however, are both in college, and they were both in the throes of finals. So we stayed quiet for an entire week. And when they both arrived home the following Thursday night, we were able to give them the news, but at least their finals were over with, and we all were able to be together for a couple of weeks before everybody returned to college. So you're a cancer survivor now. Cancer survivor, yep. It is responding to treatment, so all is good. And
3: what's the plan? You're going through chemotherapy, and then what's going to happen?
5: Uh, so chemotherapy phase one completed today, as we talked about. Phase two begins next Wednesday. I'll have four more rounds of chemotherapy once every two weeks. Then I'll have about four weeks or so off, and then I'll have bilateral mastectomy. Mm-hmm. After the bilateral mastectomy, we'll allow my body to heal for four to six weeks, and then I'll go to radiation therapy, hopefully candidate for proton beam therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, about the same time, I'll go back on one... Simple dose of um, chemotherapy called Herceptin that targets the type of breast cancer that I have, and um, after that then i 'll heal again and i 'll have a final reconstruction surgery about six months after that so you are right smack dab in the middle of fighting your way through
3: this, but you uh, wanted to you, you want to start talking before you 're even done with the whole process you wanted to start talking about MBI and why. Uh, Women should know more about it, and just so happens that we have we had Dr. Rhodes on to talk about MBI. So why should women know about? molecular breast imaging.
5: Well, fifty percent of women in the United States have and brands, breasts. and
1: breast, i Yeah. <laughs> Chemo <Chemo-brain>. thank you.
5: <laughs> Chemo brain, there you know, go. That. Thank you. Um and if you have a three or a four density out of four, you are a candidate for MBI. And in fact you should have an MBI for a lot of reasons. Um the problem is is that MBI is a little bit stuck in the politics situation. It needs a bit more research. But MBI is a less invasive comfortable mammogram, it's very inexpensive compared to MRI. And if you've ever had a breast MRI, there's not much dignity involved in a breast MRI. So you'd much rather sit for an MBI than an MRI. <laughs> I Amen to that.
3: So um, how? what is your plan when you're sitting there uh, receiving your chemotherapy or you're having one of your recovery naps? I would imagine that you are planning what you are going to do to get the word out about MBI. And Step one of that was go on Mayo Clinic Radio. Correct. <laughs> What's step
1: two? No, almost I, everybody will know now. <laughs>
5: <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not really sure I knew that Mayo Clinic Radio was going to be step one at the time. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Um, I'm actually working with a couple of other people. The manufacturer of one of the um, MBI machines, Gamma Medica, has contacted me about sharing my story and maybe working with them a little bit to try to get the story out. Um, Dr. Rhodes and I have had some discussions about how could I help get the word out, and I'm not really sure exactly what the future holds, but that's my plan.
1: Obviously, you were convinced that this is a test that a lot of women, or probably most women with dense breasts ought to have, because it picked up your cancer not as early maybe as it could have, but had you had an MBI maybe a year ago, we might have picked it up even before it had spread locally.
5: We might have, absolutely.
1: Thanks so much for being here. I know uh, every day is a tough day for you now, but you're a champ.
5: Thank you,
3: Well, Kula, we wish you all the best as you continue with your treatment, and we actually expect to hear from you again very soon. Thank Thank you, Tracy. (laughs) That's our program for this week. Find more
1: information on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
3: Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. A writer for the program is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for being with us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.